All right, Benita, welcome to the metagame. Hi. So um, I actually was having a lot of difficulty trying to frame all the work that you do. And then just before we hit record, you had this one liner, which summed it up. And I'm just going to play it back to you. And I think this will be a great starting point for the discussion. You said that your your project, your, your mission, the thing that ties all these things together is putting the psyche and the mind back into the body and putting the body back into nature. And so what do you mean by that? Um, okay, so that's a big question. I liked hearing it, hearing it being said back to me. Um, so what I mean by that is that I think when I say we and when I talk, I'm going to talk mostly about Westerners, people in the Western tradition, which um, even though there's a lot of cultural differences uh, throughout the continents, there's many, many people. I'm talking about the majority of pr people probably do enter this Western kind of mindset if they're on the internet or if they're engineers, there's a certain, mm. so so uh, that's what I mean by we, but there's of course many, many people that um, uh, would not be in this, this population group. So I'll just say that up front. Um, so what I mean by that is that we have, um, we have folk theories about the body, the mind, and the psyche. And, um, you know, we could say ever since Descartes, we have separated the mind as a kind of a ephemeral substance from the body, which is a more of matter or physical. Descartes couldn't understand how those two things could communicate to each other. We have a long history of um, separating um, through either philosophical analysis or even contemplation. If you think about um, even Buddhist meditation, when mm -hmm. they're doing Vipassana or when we do Vipassana, we are looking at phenomenon that are objects in the mind, let's say. If you right. look at phenomenon that are objects in the mind, you will find that they're empty because they are objects in the mind. But there's an interpretation that that means reality is empty. So there's there's a whole strain of Buddhists. There's the Western Descartes analysis, substance separation, substance metaphysics separation. There's religion that separates something like an eternal soul um, or your will from the gross constitution of the body. You have integral theory that separates interiors from exteriors, where interiors mm. are kind of ephemeral, kind of subtle things, and exteriors are more physical. And then you even have today in New Age, uh, New Age kind of folk theory, there is um, this notion of embodiment being thrown around. But when mm -hmm. you look at a lot of people who are doing new age embodiment, they talk about embodied, but what's happening is they, they get kind of emotionally hijacked and then they go into some kind of psychological fantasy, which I wouldn't consider embodied at all. And so, so that's the first part, like the psyche in the mind 
uh, how can we put them back into the body? And mm-hmm. I'll talk about that uh, um, in more detail, but then I'm going to answer the whole first bigger question. And so then if we can put the psyche and the mind in the body, can we put the body in nature? Now, there's a pickle here. There is a psychological barrier to this because if we, for most of us, if we think about nature, we think about Newtonian physics, Mm. that in nature, something moves something else, which moves something else, that there's this deterministic or at least potential deterministic sequence from the Big Bang onward. And then if I experience my body, then I'm in a, and I say my body is nature, then I have a cognitive dissonance because I don't think my body is completely deterministic. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to say my body is nature, that there's some kind of, you know, emergence and now humans are some kind of emergent capacity that flies above nature is not nature. Uh, sui generis. And so what my work says is you don't, we don't have to be worried about that because nature is not Newtonian physics. Nature right. is self-animated form. Nature is alive. Nature is more like you perceive your body than the Newtonian description of it. So, so we have to bring the whole thing down into an integrated system that's not dualistic. And you see the dualism both in the New Age philosophy, which says, you know, they can say I'm an embodiment trainer, but then my dreams and my channeling and my thoughts and my imagination, that's a different substance. You'll still hear that it's a dualistic uh, uh, treatment. And so how can we see the... um, the coterminous, the continuous integration of body and mind. And one of the uh, one of the inspirational things I say to people is, what if someday in the future, when people look inside into their interior, that is also problematic because that's a complete mm-hmm. construct, right? When you mm-hmm. talk to a Chinese person or a Chan Buddhist, and you they point to themselves. What's inside? They're like, okay, well, there's a heart and there's some fascia. I mean, this is a complete Western construct to point to yourself and say there's an interior there. It's a mental fabrication using concrete relationships like interior and exterior. It's like my mind in my body like candy is in a box. No. Right. But this is the mental construct we have when we say my interiors, right? But what if that move that move to go in that direction, what you discovered was just nature, just nature. Mm -hmm. So this is actually my experience when my interior, I I experience as nature, it's alive, there's a biome, there's there's molecules in my cells that are, are called you know, there are stations of ribosomes that are creating DNA and there's all this, there's all this ecology of nature. I mean, there's the cosmos inside me because the iron is made, the iron in my blood is made from the collision of galaxies. 
And so for me, that move inside and that move outside, if you're going to use that language, they both point to the same thing. So if you say, um, I want to get to my original nature, then is that word nature the same as when you point out there and say nature? And I would say yes. So that's mm -hmm. my project. That would be... So a lot of us have can buy into that linguistically, like a lot of us can buy into when I say, you cut down a tree, you take out part of my lung. Um, but what would it be to have these entrenched mental models of separation and substance? Those are optional in the human condition. Those ways right, right. of constructing what is reality are optional in the human condition. And my mission is to move them toward this other, other vision. Because my hypothesis is, if that happens, then there's like trophic ca cascades and insights that just fall out of that, that solve things like the meta crisis, like the meaning mm -hmm. crisis. Why do we have a meaning crisis? Because meaning, fidelity, love, friendship, they all come from the body. They come from our animal nature. So if you're separated from your body, you're going to think there's a meaning crisis because you can't get meaning from thoughts looking at thoughts. It's just, to me, it's so freaking simple and obvious. Yeah. Right? So that's why we have a meaning crisis. Why do we have an environmental crisis? Because we don't, we, we don't see ourselves consonant with nature. We just don't. Even the people who are big environmentalists, and this is not how they construct their actual perception of who they are and what reality is. Yeah, so that was really well put. And I think there's a couple subtle things that I just want to highlight for someone who's listening along to this. Because I feel like everything you said is very easy to give intellectual assent to. It's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like, why do we have these notions of separation? Why does our language make us feel disintegrated with nature, etc.? Um, but I, I think there's some subtle things that push us into that more disembodied perspective. And one of the first ones that came up when you were speaking about this more Newtonian understanding of the world is that if I if I think nature is Newtonian, and if I think I am nature, then I have to sacrifice. Uh, a couple things that I uh, consider precious to me. And the first thing is free will. So if I think that I'm part of this deterministic cascade since the Big Bang, and then, you know, you tell me like, yeah, that's, that's what you are, then I don't know how to square that with my first person experience of having choice. And a lot of people find that very uncomfortable. And I, I know some people that they, they don't find it uncomfortable. And they think free will is an illusion and it's totally fine. But I think that's one thing that makes it difficult for people to, to actually accept what you're saying. Um, I, I want to hear you respond to that, but I thought I'd also share a very personal example that really connects with what you said, because it kind of grounds this a little bit. I was thinking, this is kind of cheeky, but maybe the meaning crisis is just the disembodiment crisis. And then the next thought that came to me was when I was younger and I was dealing with depression, quote unquote. You know, when I was having a very depressed period of my life, one of the things that actually helped me out of it was uh, 
taking really cold showers. And it seems like kind of like a corny thing, but the reason why was because when I'd hit the cold water, it would throw me into my body. You know, I'd get into like a fight or flight type situation. My breathing would get more intense. And then I, by being in that state, I'd get out of all these kind of tangled thoughts and this sense of separation. And I'd feel, I'd feel much more connected to my body. And those types of practices I've just learned for myself over the years, like all the practices that get me more into my body, make me feel better about life, better about meaning, better about relating, et cetera. So I'm curious what you think about the, the free will piece or anything else that it seems like the Western mind uh, needs to sacrifice that has difficulty sacrificing in order to accept, truly accept what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, there's so much here. Are we here for 11 hours? That would be good. Um, yeah, we can try. <laughs> so let's talk about the free will. First of all, I want to say to the audience that in my mission, everything you think is sacred, everything you go to spirituality and religion for is not lost when you understand the body and the psyche, the psyche and the mind is part of the body and the body is part of nature. So I want to say that very strongly that they are recovered if you really understand the mm -hmm. whole thing. So, uh, so having said that, because what it is, is the mental models that prevent you from seeing that there's not a dualistic, either on nature or I have free will, that construct, that mental construction is itself the problem and mm -hmm. we can fix it. So, they seem like obstacles. There's many of these on the way. So free will. Okay. Uh, I'll give, I, I, I try to give a lot of different examples, which then means you have to kind of put the answer together yourself. But if I try to put the answer together, it's so complex, metacognitively complex, that I don't do that first. So I give you right. some things that are in the answer, okay? So what are the answer is, um, when we think of free will, we have to feel into our thinking of free will and see what's there. So what does free will mean? Does it mean I get to act and then control the outcomes? If that's the case, then that means that something I'm interacting with has to be deterministic, right? Because I'm controlling the outcomes. Mm -hmm. So this is this is an unsatisfying mental model because I'm already fucked, really, right? Right, right. Okay, so we can put that one down. Now, <clears throat> perhaps we mean by free will is that I have some sort of agency that doesn't come from outside myself, however conceived. Now, mm -hmm. some people will want, so this is a bounded question. Some people will want that term outside myself to be bounded in some ways. Some people want it to be bounded in other ways, okay? So outside myself, we'll, we can go to the boundedness, but just that way of saying, that's, that I have agency and it doesn't come from somewhere outside myself. 
we have to then look at that, but let's just, right. so is that free will? Well, you can say, does that satisfy free will? It satisfies my notion of free will. But I also believe that we live in an indeterminate universe. So even though the agency comes from inside myself, however conceived, then I don't have control ultimately over the consequences. Mm -hmm. That's now, what you mean by indeterminate. Exactly. So there are gradations of determinacy. I pretty much know if I go to pick up the pen, the pen is going to come with me. But way down, if I'm an actor in sociopolitical space, I'm not mm -hmm, quite mm -hmm. sure what the outcome of my actions are. This was something Hannah Arendt spent a lot of time talking about, and yet I can still act. So I can't tag the notion of agency inside myself to control over the outcome as I get into these more complex uh, uh, conditions. So, so this is all up for you to decide what you mean by free will. Um, you see, it's not, it's not an e, we, we take it as just, oh, free will. But what do you mean by free will? If you mean by free will, I, I think I already said that. Okay, so another thing is, um, what do I mean by free will? Now, I said to have agency that doesn't come from somewhere outside me. Now, in a Newtonian universe, this is impossible because in an Newtonian universe, nothing moves unless something else pushes or pulls it. And everything right. is just everything pushing or pulling everything else, okay? It's a continuous chain of causality. Exactly. So the problem, the, the thing is, science has gone beyond this notion of causality. This is one of the things that really bothers me about the humanists and about the people like in, in the liminal web or something. They keep mm -hmm. beating up on science and they're using science from the 40s or the 20s. They're using neuroscience from the 70s. I mean, science mm -hmm. has gone a long way to be being supportive. So, for example, in a Newtonian universe, um, if you have, I, I, I remember thinking about this when I was in high school science and I read this, I read this, uh, science and it said if you take copper and you wrap it around a magnet you get electricity you could put a light bulb at one end and i don't know something a ground at the other end. i can't remember or you put two wires in the light bulb in the middle mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i would say okay you take you take copper you wind it around a magnet you put the two ends where does the electricity come from and then the, I read the thing again. No, if you take, so it doesn't come from anywhere. It's not a, electricity. We use it as a third term, like, and then electricity flows. That's not what it is. It's just bodies in space. There's magnets. That's a body. There's copper. That's a body. And you, and something gets animated. I started thinking about this for a long time and I start realized that this is actually, we use these terms because like if you use electricity as a, as a metaphorical construct, you can make math and you can do a lot with it. 
-hmm. but it gives you the impression there's a force that has to come into the situation to make the light bulb move. But there's this great video on veracitum, if you watch that, where he yeah. shows that actually electricity doesn't even flow. Right. It's just, it's so we, so we even know by these fundamental understanding of electricity that there's no outside force that makes electricity. Electricity is the term for what we what we observe as the animation okay so this is self-animated form einstein comes along he says there's no force of gravity there's no external force of gravity he says when the apple falls the earth and the apple are pulling on each other we don't see the earth move very much because it's asymmetrical and he says and they're pulling on each other because that's what mass does. That's what mass does. It curves space, which is they're pulling on each other. There's no force of gravity that it's just what mass does, right? Mm -hmm. Everywhere we look in science, we see self-animated form. If you deconstruct the construct that makes you look for something else. So in a in a rigor so the neuroscience is filled with like if i raise my arm okay there's physical you know it's the muscle that moves the arm and the, this that moves the muscle and th there's this whole series of cause new, has to be newtonian cause and effect until you get to mm -hmm. well and then the intention does that and the intention is ephemeral. And now I can't figure out, it's basically impossible for me to move my arm. Right. Right? Or there's a ghost in the machine. These, or there's a ghost in the machine. So from a Newtonian perspective, you can't analyze the question. It's not, first of all, we science is beyond Newtonian. It's a shorthand for things like billiard balls. And it, it's a useful heuristic. But... If I see all the way through my system, there's self-animated form and there's sub-threshold, there's so much going on, then it's no surprise that what comes out of that is this complex human experience. There's so many levels of animation going on. And so that's, that's another piece. And then I'm going to give you one other piece, okay? Mm -hmm. When you see this, nested embeddedness a relationship of animation and to be self-animated means that there's the self-animation the self-agency part of it but of it but then there is the fact that if i pick up the pen the pen is picked up so the notion of free will you have to incorporate what I call promise and possibility. Mm. If the pen did not promise to lay on the desk, I could not pick her up. It promises to do that, it's like it's given me a promissory note, because its agency is to fall on the earth. Right. I remember you once said that nature's laws are like deep promises. 
they're like deep promises exactly yeah. and so so you might feel dissatisfied with what i just say because then you can say but is there free will and i can only say when you ask that go inside your head and you will see you have a newtonian framework that's mm -hmm. trying to solve the problem and you can't solve that problem either become a idealist or a reductionist that's the mm -hmm. only choice the newtonian framework gives you and so the way through is to say well that's a useful framework but not to solve this kind of a question so let's say i'm uh i'm content with that or i'm not worried that i'm going to lose the things that are sacred to me by this project of putting the body back into the nature um there's still a bunch of practical issues or practical hurdles that stop people from doing that you know the first one that comes to mind is that we're very linguistic like language biased right like uh we're always talking to each other we're texting each other you know we're we're on our computers etc and so to, to me there's very intuitively i think we're in an environment that encourages disembodiment and i think there's quite a lot of work to do for most people to to move in the other direction um, and, I, and I'd love to hear you share your, your thoughts on how to do that. But first, what is your definition of embodiment? Because this is a word that people throw around a lot. And you even said the New Age community seems a little bit confused about it. So yeah, well, how do you define it? Okay, again, I, I, I want to tell you stories. Um, Go for it. Okay, so you mentioned linguistic. If you, um, if you talk to yourself in your head, I'm not talking about the kind of subtle, we'll get to that, the kind of, you know, you're thinking, but you're not practicing a script in your head. But if you mm -hmm. practice a script in your head, like before you go on a podcast or something, right? And so you actually have an oral, um, like an oral hallucination about, you know, you can kind of, mm. all right. So Google has created a, so that's called mental talk, right? right? So Google has created a mask that has electrodes that goes on your mouth and underneath your hair. And I don't know if it goes on your tongue. And when you do that, you can see what your mental talk is. Now, why is that? It's because mental talk is made possible because the same things, the same musculature that you use to talk is activated, but at a sub-threshold level. So, you know, when crazy people talk to themselves, that, it, that activation is too high of a threshold. Mm -hmm. It just comes, comes up. Right. So mental talk is something your body is doing. This is 100% proven and we have this thing, okay? So it turns out that every kind of perceptual image in your mind actually is the same thing, that it's running the same architecture of actually seeing at a sub-threshold level. 
That's what's happening. It's just micro subthreshold levels. So all a lot of this you're not conscious of, right? If you if you do a lot of meditation or if you have what I call deep phenomenology, you can be conscious of this and you can hack it. Like a lot of thinking has to do categorizing semantic clusters have to do with where you put your eyes. So if you have mm -hmm. someone and I train them to keep their eyes still and I ask them a simple question like, where do you live? You can't answer it because your eyes have to move because you categorize things by putting them in physical place, virtual places, and your eyes, your gestures are part of that retrieval because it's a, it's a virtual reenactment of how we go looking for things. Now, the right. science on this is extremely sophisticated now, extremely sophisticated. So nothing in your mental or psychic phenomenon comes from something other than your body. Right. Okay. So, so this is what I call embodiment. This is actually true. However, we have to understand if what we're perceiving are virtual perceptions. So when I talk to myself, there's sub-threshold reenactments of actually speaking. When I imagine, uh, so even New Caledonian crows can do this. They can simulate, if you have a problem that takes five or six steps, so they have to, they have to pull the string to get the stick, to put the stick, you know, there's five or six steps. Mm -hmm. They can watch, they can look at it, and then they can be successful through one or two or three of the steps before they try because they can simulate the environment in their imagination, in their heads, okay? And when you simulate the environment, you're calling like your, your legs are, if you have to walk, your legs are saying, oh, it's all micro threshold, uh, sub-threshold. So there's sub-threshold enactments of what it would be to do that in the physical environment, okay? So uh, there are all these micro-actions. So, um, but what I want to know as an embodied practitioner is what part of the phenomenon are sub-threshold are imaginary, are imaginative creations, and what are are not. Because when I simulate the environment, then I can mash up. Um, although, although all the everything in my simulation comes from something antecedent in the physical world. Um, mm -hmm. I can mash these things up so I can imagine having another set of eyes on my knees and going to the dream state and kind of getting some virtual dolly diffuse experience of what that would be like. But if I wake up and I'm like, oh, that's who we really are, then I'm in trouble. Because right. I need to be able to experience the creative and imaginative quality of the virtual perception, of the virtual space, in order to make sense of it and to ask, is that useful?
So I'll give you one last example in this question uh, is that there is a classic story of this guy who was doing neuroscience and he was, you know, classically, he's teaching rats to, to run mazes. And usually the, the instrumentation there, you know, you have, in this case, the, the cranium is, is surgically removed and the electrodes are deep in the brain and it's very complex, but usually the instrumentation here is you look at patterns in, you know, nervous system, global patterns on a screen. But he realized that the your ears, your your uh, sense of hearing is more refined than your sense of of sight. So instead of having those patterns come up visually on a screen, he had them turn into sounds. Mm -hmm. So he'd gotten so familiar that when a rat ran maze A, he could recognize it by the sound. And if the rat was mm -hmm. running maze B, he could recognize it by the sound automatically. So this, this trans, this, you know, modem, this transmodal thing he did was very uh, important to him. So one day he was taking notes and he forgot to shut the equipment off and the rats were sleeping. And he heard a sound, a song he never heard before. And what it was, where the rats were taking parts of maze A and parts of maze B, putting to them together in a simulation and running them. And mm. this is why this is a very powerful uh, capacity because evolutionarily, there's a chance that someday the rat may in fact encounter a maze that's got some part of A and some part of B. And so he's already learning. He mashes up his environment into potential environments that he may in fact encounter. This is why we have the phenomenon of rats learning at incredible leaps, you know, because they are learning a potential maze you might put in front of them two years from now. And mm -hmm. this is what we do when we simulate. Now, the thing about humans is that we have so many imaginary environments like the internet and movies is that we are mashing up, you know, it's like five orders removed. It's imagination, yeah. mashing up imagination, mashing up imagination, mashing up imagination which can be very creative. And in that process, we could find patterns that are actually useful in the real world. But if we're not, we don't, if we're not also experiencing the imaginative and creative aspect of it, then we'll just lapse into fantasy. You repeat that last line. So not if we're not experiencing the creative and imaginative aspects of it, we'll fall into fantasy. What, what do you mean by that? So, um, so what I mean by that is if 
I understand or, or understand something in a new way. Like Einstein said, he said, you can't get a scientific insight through logic. It's an, it's a leap of imagination. Mm. Um, and so when he's on the elevator and, you know, he's got a, he's already thinking about all this stuff and it's, there's, so he's simulating a lot of different mashups and he's on this elevator and he feels when the elevator goes up that that feels like gravity. And he starts to think of gravity and full, uh, and relativity as relative movements. And this, this is, he could tell that that was his imagination. And the question is, is this useful? And it was useful after it gets modified and, and, and whatever. But he understood that there was a creative aspect to this discovery that, that, is useful, but not necessarily stable for all eternity. There could be another reconception, another creative spark. Uh, of course, quantum mechanics came along as a different type of imaginary framework or metaphorical mm -hmm. framework. And so, so he he was he was uh, he was aware of that you have to enter a framework, which is part of your creative capacity in order to solve uh, problems that are not solved in other ways. I'll give you an easier example. So uh, in Ptolemy, um, he won a prize for solving the mathematics of predicting the position of all the planets in the night sky around the whole year. Mm -hmm. And to do that, because he was thinking of the movements relative as from the earth as the center, he had to figure out why uh, some of the planets apparently went backwards. So they moved like this in epicycles. So when they were doing an epicycle, and he figured out all the math. So that imaginary vantage point from the center of the earth was effective in solving that problem. But when Copernicus comes along, he imagines that, oh, what if the sun, it, imagine what it looks like from the sun. Of course, he had to imagine that. He wasn't standing right. on the sun. So this imaginative leap. And the reason why we keep that frame is because it solves the same problem and it's much easier. So it's easier to build off of that more complexity because it releases the complexity in Ptolemy's answer, okay? So we now know like if you look at the solar system from one of these satellites, not even a satellite, something much further out, it's there's the movements are all relative to each other, right? It, right? Like the whole thing is moving and and there's a lot more going on. And so the vantage point from which you're solving the problem is an imaginative frame. It doesn't mean there's something wrong or it's a mm -hmm. fantasy. But 
we need to come to terms with understanding this capacity to add a component into the the question space and if we're adding a component into the question space that we're blind to then we're just kind of we could be caught up into fantasy right we need to be able to understand that part of that that part of the solution that we're using yeah, so, so I could say, well, it's like that because, you know, God, God makes that happen. Well, you know, all right. So if I enter into that framework, yeah, is that a useful framework? Maybe yes, maybe no. It's, it's imagine imaginary. Um, yeah. So, so this, uh, reminds me of, uh, pragmatism. Um, from an epistemological perspective. So all these models are right, quote unquote, insofar as they're useful for, for some sort of goal. Um, the, th the thread that I wanted to pick up on, and the reason why I was a little confused with how you ended the conversation about imagination just a moment ago, is that when you're adding all these layers of imaginative reality, so, you know, movies and digital environment and like, you know, your social, your friends are little avatars on Twitter. Um, and you, they just keep building up and then you spend 10 hours a day in this digital place where everything is actually just multiple orders removed from, if we can call it like the object level or like ground reality. Um, to me, that that's like the direction of, of disembodiment. And at some point you can actually have a, a deep disconnection with what Maybe, maybe this is where nature comes in. You have a deep disconnection with nature and this, there's this whole like towering Jenga tower edifice thing that's all based on imagination on imagination and none of it is actually in service of the things that matter. And so am I right in thinking that when you say you're putting the body back into nature or, or even the first part of it, putting the psyche and the mind back into the body, it's like going out of that direction that modernity seems to be pulling us in which is like just layers and layers of imagination layers and layers of constructs and language yeah so i can say a couple of things like it's good that i'm imagining that i'm talking to someone right mm -hmm. if i were um it depends upon you know what you think your cat is doing you know if if i had a different type of nervous system i wouldn't see a person on the screen i wouldn't I, there's a lot of imagination we're bringing to this experience. I would just see pixels mm. on a screen, some grayscale. Um, of course, as the technology gets better, it's easier for me to imagine and and versus Morse code, I have to really imagine there's someone on the other side. Maybe it's, it was easier then. So, um, but of course, we know the flip side of that is, is maybe you're not real or maybe your control of this conversation is, how do I even know you're hearing what I'm saying? Maybe it gets transmodeled into something else or whatever. Um, or I'm a deep fake. You're a deep fake or I'm a deep fake. So we know that there is, these things can get out of control. There's a use, usefulness that these things can get out of control. Now, having said that, um, I think that 
the ordinary person would say, yeah, but there's so much here and we can be so creative. Mm -hmm. And I would say this is also part of the fallacy that we live under, because I would say that if we can get the psyche and the mind back into the body and the body back into nature, there's questions and journeys and adventures and explorations in that direction toward the natural world, toward the concrete and practical, that I would say actually dwarf what is possible in between just human imagination. Now I'm going to give mm -hmm. you an example of that. So one time I had some people over here uh, <clears throat> that were very bright people, people that uh, many of you have seen featured on uh, these podcasts, and they we were having kind of a, a group discussion, and then we took a break, and we're at the dinner table, and. There was a side conversation about when the singularity would happen. So they were computing Moore's law and the, how many mm. bits of information in the universe and, and this conversation was going on. And then I said, well, this is very interesting because all you're computing is the symbolic and linguistic bits of information. But how about all the information and all the molecules and all my cells and all the environment and all the cosmos? All of that is required for me to be standing here in the first place before I even utter a sound. How do you compute that? Well, you just leave it out of your calculation. Mm -hmm. And then they just dropped it because that's what we're doing. We're just computing stuff from here into the virtual versus everything that has been required over time through space. You know, the cosmology didn't happen years ago. If it wasn't, if galaxies still weren't crashing into each other, everything would be removed from the universe. All of it. It's not like it's in the past. All of that is uh, the bottom of the iceberg that allows me to compute Moore's law. And you're not computing any of that. And so it completely dwarfs the concept of Moore's law and the singularity. So mm. this is complete falsity. And so what I'm saying is there's more information, more beauty, more adventure in that direction than in this metaverse, you know, your mind talking to your mind and other minds. It's just so limited. If you look at the shelf life of a podcast, I mean, the, everything is kind of burning out really fast now because there's only so much you're going to do in this limited realm of experience. And so that's another thing that I see very clearly that no, you're not going to give up the infinite exploration of reality by entering an unreality. There's right. more infinite adventures and information and beauty and surprise in the other direction. So uh, a couple things come to mind here. First, you're scrambling all my spatial metaphors because I'm becoming very aware of them. And I was about to say that there's more creativity and inspiration and adventure downwards because my spatial metaphor tells me that the body is down. Um, but then what's interesting about that is 
down feels more limited because the ground is there and then I stop measuring once I hit the ground. And that's why this idea of like being uploaded, yes, you know, or, or going to space, going up or the singularity, it feels like more like a frontier, but it definitely isn't. I mean, you, it's, it's clear to me that it isn't. It's just my spatial metaphors limit me. And when I think about this. This is why it's very hard to get out of it because all yeah. of these things that seem trivial are re re reaffirming what you're trying to move away from. This is my beef. For example, I've had this conversation with a couple of uh, metapsychologists, um, which is why I don't uh, speak with them on their podcasts. Because mm. I say, okay, your system is beautiful, right? There's this nested set and there's emergent levels. And you might be quick to say, oh, but it's continuous. I say, but there's epistemic leakage in the way you have your model and the way you talk. So when you say down, that has the epistemic leakage that there's not a lot going on there. When mm. you say that the cosmology is in the past, you have this temple framework, then it's like that's one and done. And that's not true. So mm. my my part of my project when I work with teachers is is to be very careful that there's not epistemic leakage in what we're talking about. And so so to fix your frame, it's like, do you ever see those visualizations of the Mandelbrot set? And you mm -hmm. go like this, and then you're going in and in and in. And you might ask yourself, how can I go in forever? Doesn't it get claustrophobic? But when you go in, the space distorts, the space, the dimensions are the same going in as going out. Yeah. Because it's all relative. So there's an infinite space going that way, and there's infinite, this is the true Mandelbrot. There's no, there's no, it's, it's, so this is a much more sophisticated framing of what actually happens in space than what you were, you're fighting against. But that's how mm -hmm. fractals actually work. You're not going in smaller and, you know, like you're getting smaller at the same time. So the, the space is still infinite. And, and so that's, that's, that's one thing. And the other thing I want to say, there's so many of these. This is like my mm -hmm. whole my whole reality is getting people over these epistemic leakage. Here's another one. When we have these ladders that go from matter, energy to matter to, uh, you know, like uh, my origins of the self. And we see them as temporal. Okay, so in one frame of mind, they are temporal in a certain sense. The apes are in my past, right? But mm -hmm. in a certain sense, I'm co-temporary with them too. There are still apes, apes around. But mm -hmm. what we actually know of evolution is even more radical than that. Now, this is this is a known aspect of evolution. When I see a frog, in a sense, I'm looking at my past. But every, if all the life forms died and the frogs could be my future just like when the dinosaurs died the shrew the lonely shrew became the progenitor of human beings hmm. so <clears throat> when we get into this epistemic leakage about this ladder of evolution we look at the frog oh it's in my past 
We forget that, no, it's evolving here with me too, but we for also don't realize it could be the progenitor of my future. Now, mm. we know that. It's not acceptable for these people on the liminal web to say otherwise. It's just not acceptable, in my opinion. Right. And right. we, sh you know, this should be like. You know, it's uh, the thing that hit me just there was with this, with the framing that you just provided. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm now at the same frontier with all the animals. And a moment ago, I didn't realize that my implicit thought was that we are somehow further along in, in the story. And, and it, what follows from that is that I don't have as much to learn from the animals, right? Like it just na naturally follows that it's like, yeah, you know, they're, they're from the past. <laughs> and you know, the thing is you actually know better. Once I point it out, you know, better, yeah. right? Yeah. Everything that is exists has been evolving for the same amount of time. Yeah. Of course, it's obvious. It's just, it's trivial. But this epistemic leakage, these mental frames, these, these, this pathology of anthropocentrizing ourselves, that everything on the evolutionary, everything of importance happens on our branch of the tree. These are yes. all psychopathologies. And mm. I don't have to, I mean, we didn't even get into like any, any freaky stuff that I know, but we're just saying even just regular our own science is yeah. is at this stage so so um now you can start to see how you can re-enchant same with culture we put you know this culture down at the bottom of a color and this culture up here but that's not how evolution works the mm -hmm. whole thing is evolving and you know it it's like if you take wilbur's uh, thesis out to the extreme, then it would say the world, what if the world, all, everybody should be an enlightened person, no insects, mm -hmm. no, well, you, it's not possible. If you take out the insects, everything would die. You have to say, okay, the, some, the harmonic that is the human condition has evolved to this point. The harmonic is moving because when the shit hits the fan, if the shit's going to hit the fan, it's not people like you and me at the high level of late capitalist supply chain that are going to live. It's just mm. not. It's the reindeer people that are going to live. So, or the homeless people. This is, yeah. we need all of this in the human system. It's not trivial. I'm not patronizing the reindeer people or I'm not patronizing the homeless person. That's not what I'm doing. I'm elevating the importance of the whole sum of the human condition and the whole sum of the natural world. This is everything else is that best patronizing. Oh yes, you know, but we yes. need to be be nice to them. Yeah, like uh, like this pseudo egalitarianism. Th this actually brings up something that that came up in a previous conversation, which is. Um, Kind of like potentially in tension with what we've just discussed, which is the the importance of hierarchy, or the how, the right way to think about hierarchy. And the, what came up before was that it seems like in modern contemporary culture, especially in political discussions, we get a bit uncomfortable with hierarchy, and that's why you see a lot of political movements 
that are oriented towards equality. And that's why even in organizations, people are trying to get into like flat organizations and things like that. And I just know from personal, my personal life that, you know, some people are better than other people in certain dimensions and you should learn from those people. Some people are wiser and you should learn from those wiser people. And that creates a sense of hierarchy. And hearing you describe this, I don't know what to call it, but this frame, this perspective of reality where it's almost like everything is at the frontier. Uh, it seems like, uh, it seems like they're, I mean, a naive understanding of that might remove this notion of a hierarchy. So I, I just wanted to understand how you think about hierarchy and maybe there's a, there's actually a better construct here. And I'm also mm -hmm. just running into these spatial metaphors again. So, um, hierarchy is an interesting frame of categorization of phenomenon and this framing is real um i mean it it works um let me let me just you should cut that out because if i use the word real it just doesn't work okay <laughs> so i think hierarchies exist i think that they are important and i but i think we are um, again, we need to be uh, multivalent about how we categorize experience. So they used to, for example, uh, categorize or explain herd dynamics in horses uh, primarily around the phenomenon of the dominant stallion. Mm. And of course, there's many behaviors that are organized around the hierarchy of the stallion. But there's many behaviors that have nothing to do with that. A lot of times the stallions are up playing with each other and sometimes stallions who grow up with other cults will share wives. And the other mm. thing we notice about hierarchies, and this is true in all organizations, except people don't look for it, is that there is no hierarchy where A, in all complex hierarchies versus like really stupid ones, like formal mm -hmm. hierarchies, like um, uh, the military, where it's just not, even in the military, it's possible to do this, but A can be higher than B, that can be higher than C, that can be higher than D, but D has some kind of access to, to B which gives them leverage over C. There's always mm -hmm. these complex feed loops. So for example, in prison, you, mm. you can become the wife of the dominant guy. And now you have power over the series. Yes. In all living systems, there are feedback loops. So the hierarchy is not linear. You think about the CEO's secretary mm -hmm. on the role thing, she has no power. She has very little power. She's a secretary. That's not how it works though, is it? She right. has a lot of implicit social capital because she's been with the CEO for 40 years. In all complex systems, there are hierarchies, but they're not strictly linear. There's always access through these other loops and venues. 
Now that then says, wow, there's a lot more going on in the human system, Jordan Peterson. And you're just <laughs> not interested in the complexity of living systems. You're interested in a false diagram. Or, yeah, I think uh, the Peterson side of things is largely just reacting to the blind spot in the culture. Yeah, there's overreaction to this flat, reality is flat, and then he's either consciously or unconsciously overreacting by hyper-focusing on, on, um, on hierarchies. So yeah. um, there's a whole lot, and, and the thing is, People, you know, he'll talk about the lobster. People should not be allowed to make naturalistic fallacies if they don't spend time in nature with right. the animals and their social processes themselves. If they're reading, you know, Steven Pinker or something and saying, ah, you know, right. the apes have, this is, you got to read Jane Goodall. You've got to, this is again, just, ideas pointing to ideas yeah. and, and and hanging on one or two re, you know uh categories and then hyper stimulus and stuff like that well one of the things that i find very unique about you is and i don't know anybody else like this you've spent last 30 years or so living with horses right so you have lived experience with with animals in a way that almost nobody does and you're articulate about all these different perspectives that usually is reserved for like intellectuals and academics. And so you're, you're able to bring up some of these, I would say phenomenological experiences with animals into these models. And I know you've said that horses have a lot to teach us. I know with the frame that you just gave us as well. Um, so I'm curious, like what sort of insights, I'm sure there's so many, but what sort of insights have you gotten just from all this experience living with animals? Well, a lot. Um, so some big ones. Um, <clears throat> so I used to, you know, I've had many different uh, phases in my life with horses. I used to ride competitively, 100-mile endurance races uh, was mm. mostly what I did with horses. But when you're working with horses and training them, you also trying to understand one of the interesting things about that sport is you can't have a nervous horse. You can't use aggression or dominance because anything that brings up anxiety in a horse will decrease its endurance. So mm. you have to learn how to have a wonderful partnership with a horse in order for them to freely run a hundred miles or else they get strains and you get pulled from the races and stuff like that. So, um, but one of the journeys I've made with horses, uh, is that I used to be the, I used to be involved in the national Qigong association for a long time. I was the president of the national Qigong association for four years. Um, and I was the president at the 10th anniversary, and we had this big conference gala at the University of Colorado, many hundreds of people there. And um, 
You know, it's an interesting conference because you have all these Qigong teachers. And so when people first come in, it's like buzzy and talking and you can, like any other conference. But after a couple of days, people are doing Qigong, the teachers are there, everybody's channels are opening, the space is very mm -hmm. transpersonal, no one's talking, you look in people's eyes and there's like, so um, on the third day or something, when we had the like big presentation, I did a speech, I had a great, uh, uh, I was the president, the CEO was my good friend. And afterwards, people came up to me and they said, you, I don't know, they were projecting all this guru shit on me. And I, and I had this extremely visceral feeling, like I had to run into the bathroom. I felt like I had gum in my hair. And when, you mm. know, I was like, kid, I have really long hair and you'd get gum in it or people, the boys would put gum in it or something. And you, you had no choice. You had to cut your hair. And so this was so strong a feeling to me. I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to put my horses. I was doing Qigong with horses. I'll put my horses between me and the people. So when the people thought, oh, Remington visited me in a dream, like, that's fine. You know, the horses could deal with projection. So that was my first thought. Mm. But then the less I did and the more I watched, I was like, fuck, the horses are better at what I want to do than I am. And they're not doing anything. This, this was like an inquiry I had for 30 years. I started doing less and less. I've seen amazing things because they're ju just horses. So this, then I wasn't riding 100-mile endurance races anyway. This was like... I got a stallion. I wanted to understand this land. I, I was really hooked on understanding what is a horse? What is, what is this energy? What is going on? Then my third phase was not just standing by and letting them do it, but saying, I want to be like that. Mm -hmm. Basically, I was saying, I want to be like nature because that was the difference. They were a body that was still embedded in nature. Mm -hmm. And so I had to, and I give workshops like this that are very fundamental. I'm like, you're going to move that foot a half a step back. Okay. And I show them, I don't even have to even, as soon as I think about it, the horse's foot goes back because I'm completely aligned in intention and body. It's very simple. And then a person uses a stick and they whack, whack, and nothing happens. Because, and then I'm like, well, what's happening in your mind? What are you trying to do? And they're like, I'm trying to get the horse, which means they have projected a theory of mind on the horse that they're talking to. Immediately with this simple instruction, the average person is a balloon of imaginal complexity. This, mm -hmm. I think, is a problem. Like, I think we should have the capacity of imagination, but it shouldn't like arise out of the body spontaneously that we don't even know what's going on. And that's how most people are mm -hmm. without a doubt. So I would, my courses sometimes are these simple little things. And then people have this cathartic moment that it's the simplest, like taking a shower. You tell people take a shower and people are like, that's so stupid, right? No, these are not trivial. And so, so this can make you kind of despair that the amount of re-education that the mm. human system needs is huge. Um, I'll give you another example. I, I'm teaching a course on the self. It's got this 
featured were on the session of the course. That's the psychedelic self, the part of the self that the structures can be more porous and the schema can move around. You can have these non-ordinary experiences. So we're talking about, we're trying to describe non-ordinary experiences from a very fundamental level, okay? So like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of something. Oh, like if I'm in the flow state and I'm playing sports, what's online? My perception's online. My exterioception is very much online, my balance. But I might not have a sense of self in a true flow state. Only after the mm. fact, I'm like, wow, that was amazing. What did I do? So the sense of self can be offline. So, so I ask people, what happens when you dream? And at this level of specificity, and they come back and they're like, well, you get in touch with the causal realm. And we're like, no, no, no. How about this? What is sleep paralysis? Okay, my body goes to sleep. You see, like, like th these people in our community are completely detached yeah. from the actual fundamental human condition. Now, I'm not saying it's in not interesting what happens in the imaginal realm, but if you're completely flying in there, there's there's... There's no usefulness for that. Just um, to pick up on what you said with the horses, when you're communicating with the horses without all that imaginal complexity and they're responding to you, what what exactly is happening in that process? It's like you're conveying an, an intention to them? Like just t tell us a little bit about that. So... Uh, and I'll bring it, I'll start somewhere and I'll bring it down. So um, in Qigong, you use imagination and intention because it can help you take a posture. So if I imagine myself being a big bird, ugh, okay? So mm. that's how we use imagination and intention in Qigong because it is associated with the posture. But we understand that the relevant thing is the posture. Okay, so <clears throat> I'm not saying I don't use any imagination or intention, but I use it to help my posture. So sometimes yeah. people are contracted and I'm like, strut like a peacock. Because if you don't give them the imagination, they won't be able to do that with their body. So that's mm -hmm. primarily how we do use imagination and intention in the worst work. But when you get really good at it, you don't need that. You notice that just bodies in space, there's gestures. It's very hard to explain. Like I can mm -hmm. have someone sit on a chair and we work in an open bar and and just have them watch what comes up. And the horse is just there moving around. And the horse will make these little gestures. If they're nervous, they go like this on the floor, just like we talk, like about the weather. And then they start to do very interesting things. And they look very intentional. Like, And then, depending upon the posture, or the gesture that horse will make, 
I can tell what the person is thinking about. So the horse is a form of feedback on the state of mind of the person because the horse has a greater sensitivity to all the subtleties that the person is experiencing? Yeah, okay, so the horse is aware of the micro gestures of the person. Mm -hmm. And I've become very aware of the micro gestures of the horse. They're louder, they're bigger. Mm -hmm. And like Hans, the famous horse who could count because he could tell the eyes. Are you here? Yeah. Okay. So what you notice is that there's a lot of information that's just in the perceptual body and the other body. And this is what I was saying. Like our thoughts are, there's micro gestures. The, the sub-threshold gestures. Yeah. Like the reason why your dog knows if you're lying is because they're doing NLP. They've, for years, they've watched what eye moves where. So it's not transfer of some kind of ephemeral consciousness. Mm -hmm. The body is doing a lot. The body is doing a lot. So that's why I'm saying there's a lot of interest going into the physical world at this level. But your body as a sensorium, the, the, the ability for the body to ask questions is really, really coarse grained in us now. We don't know how to. It's been pretty much eliminated from our vocabulary. So one of the things, for example, we can notice is that throughout time, the horse has been with us for millennials, millennia, I don't know. Throughout time, the horses come very far into our world. They live in farms, they know our schedule. So you ask a person to spend a day with a horse and what did you discover about them? They'll discover nothing about them except projection that the horse doesn't like me, they'll say. Right, right. So we have lost our capacity to use our perceptual, our body as a sensorium to move into nature. I mean, there's the, so that's, these are kinds of things that I've learned with horses uh, um, and, and gardening and, 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 and the clouds and, and all kinds of things. There's, there's, um, there's more, there's more portals to the adventure it, with the, the, with the body as a sensorium. I don't know how else to say it. You know, that, that quote by Nietzsche came to mind. I think he says something like there's more wisdom in the bodies than in the minds of men. Oh yeah. And I want to read you this quote that I just read today. Which it's Go so apropos because um, because most people don't think of Nietzsche as being body positive, right? Like just what mm -hmm. you said, and this guy goes, "Here's that." Just give me a second. You'll love this. Okay. A case could be made that everything interesting that has happened in thought philosophy most broadly understood in the past hundred years or so is at least foreshadowed 
and in many cases clearly laid out in the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche. Unfortunately, those inspired by Nietzsche's critiques of objectivism did not also follow his lead back to the body and the biological mm -hmm. roots of human cognition, but rather seemed to have, in the end, fallen into the very sort of idealism and intellectual tartuffery that Nietzsche <laughs> so despised. And you see that in the humanities, they co-op Nietzsche yeah. into this like imaginal tartuffery of, you know, versus what you said. This was his bottom line was the roots of the intellect in the body and the body and its biological roots in nature. Yeah, you know, um, if if you read him closely, he's he's all about the body and he he's critiquing the direction of European philosophy because it just went all the way into the head. And another quote of his that I really like is never trust the thought you have indoors. And that's part of the reason why he'd always go on these hikes because when the body is animated, you know, when the body feels vital, then the mind follows. And you see that in his philosophy as well. He, he just had these crazy one-liners that probably came out in these like really vital moments. Yeah. And then now we can say, based on our conversation, thought is the animation of the body. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's not cause and effect. It's, it's because that's what thought is. The thought is an animated body. You know, it's why Magnus Carlsen, the chess player, is so into sports, okay? Because there's, yeah. What do you, you know, so next time you're hiking the woods and someone says, what are you doing? Oh, I'm thinking with my feet. Um, there's so much to say, like, um, I'm waiting for you to introduce this, but another one of these obstacles people have is when we are talking about the role of imagination in science, then you can get to these idealists like Bernard Katzup that says nothing yes, is actually was, real, it's constructive. I was going to ask you about him. Uh, and this is also one of these, like, if you put me in a frame, like, Newtonian physics, then, and you ask me the question of free will, I'll be in a pickle because the pickle jar is the frame. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, let me, so for example, and, and I'll probably straw man Katzrup here, sorry, uh, but I'll just call it an idealist. So an idealist would say, well, when you look at reality, uh, you look at something, um, the image on your retina has to be reversed by your brain, and then all this, you're actually only seeing a part of it, so your brain actually supplies the information from other sides and this and that, so it's constructed, right? This is what people will say. Well, number one, the easy answer to that is, what makes you think the visual organ is the retina? The visual organ is the lens and the retina and the this and the that and its interaction with it, it, it evokes the sound that the visual organ is multifaceted holistic system. That's what's seen. But what we say is that the visual organ is the retina and then the mind is doing something to it. And I'm mm. like, well, if you stop at the retina, 
then you're going to have this problem. Okay. So that's one thing, but a really good example of, of how to get out of this pickle jar is for example, when you used to use old fashioned cameras and you took a picture, if for example, the sun was in the background, you couldn't see anything, right? Mm -hmm. So you had to learn where to position the sun. And um, then you would have, now we have like filters, sun, you know, you could have all these settings and stuff like that. So as we add these settings, we get a more clear picture. It's more accurate, correct? Mm -hmm. does, does that make sense? And now the iPhone does all this, all this adjusting by itself to get an accurate picture. Well, that's, or, or like, if you're doing a movie, why, and you're doing, getting a really good photo shoot, why do you have all this artificial light and this and that? Because the camera, in order to get accurate picture, the kind of picture we say is accurate, meaning it looks like what our eyes see, needs mm -hmm. a lot of adjusting factors. And that's exactly what our perceptual organs do. They add these adjusting factors. But with the camera, we say, well, it's more accurate. And with the person, we say, oh, it's constructed. It's illusory. Mm. You see the difference? It's like the idealist has set you up in a frame that will put you in a pickle. You And you are forced to be confused about whether reality is real or not. And and the frame is it's specifically this, um, I guess like reductionism where you're you're taking out different elements that you can name, like the iris and the retina, and then assigning exactly. functions you're, to it. Exactly, you're saying the eye is the organ of perception, and then the mind has to add stuff to make yeah, you yeah, see yeah. what you see. And I just say, well, what makes you think the eye, the organ of perception stop, stops at the eye? Right. It's like saying the feet are the organ of walking. And when I'm, but my eyes have to add to the walking that I don't bump into something. It's just ridiculous. It's, it's you, you frame a problem so it's not, it, it's impossible to solve, and then you do the philosophical gotcha. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I just thought was kind of poetic is um, we were talking about horses, and then that brought us to Nietzsche. And then I remembered that you know Nietzsche had a psychotic break hugging a horse, and it just that just hit hit me with much more poignancy now because maybe he did he saw something right he saw something that we have neglected because our our understanding of nature and our relationship with it is so coarse grained. I wonder what you think of that. Yeah, I would say that it's not as trivial as you will hear the story like the horse was being beaten and he felt sorry for the horse. I think mm -hmm. there was something much deeper going on. Yeah. If I, uh, if I like take what he was saying seriously about the body, um, his whole, as I understand it, his whole philosophy was that the West had, because we had neglected this aspect 
of our nature, which, which also is what brought Europe to where it was at the time, you know, the, all the high culture, the, the fact that we were able to create art, the fact that we were able to create civilization, it all started with the body and, and the, this like life force, this energy, this vitality that is inherent within it. And then we got to this point where we neglected it and we created this duality. And it just seems like all this philosophy was about like, you know, some people call him the last philosopher because he was trying to use philosophy itself to reveal like the dead end that it had gotten to. And this has had a big impact on me. I know Nietzsche affects young men a lot in certain ways, but I feel like there's like the, uh, the pre-trans fallacy with Nietzsche, where you have this naive understanding of him initially when you're like an 18 year old boy. And then at some point you really understand what he was on about. And I, I think I'm, I'm getting a lot more insight from these Nietzschean ideas these days, because really it's all about the body. Like, it, and anyone else who talks about embodiment, um, with the wisdom and the, the depth that, that you are. I think is, is talking about the same thing. And it seems that what we're doing with the meta crisis and this whole like collapse of Western civilization can be diagnosed in, in a very simple way, which is that you know, coming back to what we said in the beginning, right? The, the psyche and the mind is not in the body and the body is not in, in nature. Um, I want to hear you react to that, but I have a very concrete question, which I think could take us home and might be, um, helpful for people, which is what, what do we do? Like what practice can I do as an individual to become more embodied and connect more with nature? Maybe one that doesn't involve having a stable of horses. <clears throat> I think that the first move is The only, you, you need to make this move first because then the practice is not sustainable. Because it takes a lot, when you first start, you're going to feel like an alien and you're going to feel like there's nothing going on, perhaps. Um, so you need to make kind of a um, commitment like, to a certain virtue or virtue ethic. Mm. And that is, I'm going to somewhere, at some level, be in service to nature. It has to be a service thing, because our relationship to nature is what can I get out of nature? Let me go take a walk and I'll feel better. That's, we're still taking, taking, mm -hmm. taking from nature. So the only <clears throat> effective approach is to be in service to nature. So, um, and now there's many uh, choices. When, like when we moved here, how could we make um, more flora and fauna and environment for bees and birds? Mm. Um, so, there are... Um, you know, you could you could plant seeds at your house and try to understand seeds and why do they grow and where does all that capacity come from? And you could, um, I mean, you could harvest your own poop 
and grow mm. vegetables in it to force yourself to eat your own poop. <laughs> no, I know my grandmother's saying, I don't know why you like those beets so much. There's, they're nothing but chicken shit. This is an important practice. Like, like uh, you need to dissolve these incongruencies between what's actually alive and what uh, you are pushing away. Um, you need to, if you see, I mean, one of the funnest things I do is, is this, where the spiders live in my house. And I ask myself, how, how do, what do they eat? Like, where do they get their water? Like, how do they, I mean, everything is, and to notice you have no idea. You have no idea. You, you, you don't know anything about this and, and go on a journey there. Um, when you have your dog, don't force it to live in your world. Figure mm. out where does it want to walk? Why does it want to do the way? What if I, you know, your dog wants to play with you more and you don't want to. What if I turn the tides? What if I just turn the tides? And, uh, you know, I, saw, I had this young man over and I have this big white dog. He's a farm dog. He's a lot of dog. And this young man, he was rolling on the grass with them and they were having so much fun. And I remember we used to do that as kids. People don't do that with their pets anymore. Their pets are like, yeah. have to be like people now. Like, uh, people don't do that because they don't know how to use their body playfully. I mean, I, I know women who've said this to me. I want to play it with my kid, but I don't know how to use do that with my body. Mm. Literally. They get on their hands and knees and they're stiff. This is a real tragedy, and it's not a tragedy that's separate from this highfalutin term called the metacrisis. And that's one of our problems. Many people are trying to work at that. You can't get to that. It's a thought. It's a meta-concept. Mm. You have to repair what is broken right in front of your face. And the reason why people want to talk about the metacrisis is because it's easier then try to repair what's broken right in front of your face, in your own home. Dee, thanks so much for this conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to close on or leave everybody with? No, I think it's been a great conversation. Um, I, I, I just wanted to throw in an anecdote um, that when I graduated from college, as an undergrad, I was a double major in a science in neurophysiology and um, in philosophy. And I did my uh, bachelor's thesis on Nietzsche's will to power. So he's, mm. been, he's been part of my life for a long time. You, you always blow my mind. Like uh, every, <laughs> every encounter I've had with, with you and your, your work, I, I always feel like uh, something has like dramatically shifted at the end of the conversation. And so I'm very, I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. And I want people I think part of what animates me is I want people to really see that it's fun exploring on this end. It's not a yeah. dead end. It's not just all stuff particles, you know, this is, there's, you won't, you can't possibly know what's on this side of the equation until until you get through the obstacles and you, you 
join us over here.